to the book of Galatians, and if you need a Bible, you can lift up your hand, and the ushers will uh, drop one off to you. Um, as you're turning there, I just want to take, take the opportunity to share with you my perspective on something. Um, Bobby has mentioned twice now that uh, Faith Assembly has, has basically, you know, their, their building is up for sale, and they've approached us to, to ask if we are interested in making an offer. And, uh, and so I went and looked at it as... Um, I would encourage that if you get a chance to, to maybe swing by and just kind of, you know, get a hold of what we're talking about. And, um, and, and, and I just want to give you my perspective. I'm not on the board of the church. I don't know the financial uh, position that the church is in. Um, but, but when I went there, I, this is the impression that, that I got, you know. Uh, okay, a- as a carpenter... If I walked into a, 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 a like a you know like a workshop, and, and in that workshop there was a workbench that had a wood vise, and there was a whole bunch of just bare lumber leaning up against the wall, I would look at it and I'd say, oh yeah, okay, this has potential. But if I walked into the same workshop that had the workbench and the vise and the bare lumber, but it also had a power miter saw, a whole, you know, unit of power drills, a router table, and, you know, layout tools, and all this kind of stuff, my mouth would start to water a little bit, because I would begin to see the potential of what could take place in that workshop, that it isn't just, okay, well, maybe someday, but wow, look at what's right here, right now. And that was kind of the impression that I got going there. You know, I I really don't care much for buildings. It doesn't really matter to me one way or the other, but when I saw it, and saw what was there and the potential and the tools, really, that are, are just sitting there ready, ready to go. And then knowing just the resources that we have in this body as far as the talent, the vision, the spirit, the drive, and seeing the fruit that could be born, I did get a little bit excited. So I, I bring that up to you just because they, they want an offer. They bought Casper Kill. They need to unload what, what they're doing. And I guess basically sometime this month we have to, to give them an offer. And so here's what I'm asking you to do is just pray. Pray for this church body. I do not believe that God will lead his people into something that's going to be a snare unto them. I believe he will be faithful to either open doors or closed doors. He's a good shepherd. And, and so pray that those doors would be opened or closed, that those steps would be clear. And, uh, and if you have anything to say to anybody to you know, help us make an intelligent... I shouldn't say us because I have no, no part in it, but to help them uh, make an intelligent offer, uh, then, and then you know, maybe you want to share those things. Anyway, Galatians chapter 2. Uh, I have no other announcements, but you can uh, turn to Galatians chapter 2 tonight for our Bible study. Now, chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians is basically giving to us Paul's revelation of the grace of God. Last week, we talked about the source of Paul's message, where it came from. And we saw that the message came from Jesus Christ. It wasn't handed down from generations of teaching. It wasn't something that he had heard and that resonated with him and that he signed on to and began to propagate, but it came directly from heaven unto 
Paul. Now, in chapter 2, as we carry on with Paul's revelation of grace and the grace of God, the doctrine of grace, what we see is, first of all, how Paul's message came to be accepted by the church at large. Second of all, how and why it produces division within those that call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And third, why it matters or why it's important or why it should be defended as Paul is doing as he writes this epistle. Now, in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, we have basically recorded for us there the historical record of Saul's conversion. We know from our study last week that he was one who persecuted the church. He was hostile towards Christians. And as he was on his course and going to the city of Damascus with authority from the religious establishment in Jerusalem to basically arrest and torture and persecute the Christians in the city of Damascus, it was there that Jesus Christ met him and saved his soul and radically changed his life. You know the story, the light shone like the noonday sun, so much so that Paul was physically blinded. The voice came from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutes, or whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And, and, and thus, Paul, or Saul, is converted. He becomes a Christian. And he's carried into the city of Damascus, where he's met by a man named Ananias, who prays for Paul, and Paul receives his sight. And Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit there in the early days of his Christian experience. And like many of us who, you know, our eyes are opened, Jesus is revealed to us, we're filled with His Spirit, Saul, or Paul, hits the ground running. And throughout the city of Damascus, he begins to publish Jesus Christ as the truth, the Messiah of God. He, he practically puts a death sentence upon his life, and they have to lower him down the city wall in a basket so that he isn't killed because of the strength of his zeal. He from there goes to Jerusalem where he carries with him that same fire, that same zeal for a very short time. And again, he disputes, he argues there, he debates, proves that Jesus is the very Christ to the point where again, the people there just, they don't know what to do with him so they want to kill him. And then finally the apostles say, listen, you need to leave. And, and it says that they took him down to the seaport there and they, they, they shipped him off to Tarsus, which is basically where he comes from. They said, listen, Saul, thank you. We love you. Go home. And it says that then the churches had rest. And, and you, you get the idea right there with that, that, that what Paul was doing there was not what you would call necessarily effective. Interesting. Basically, he makes a mess of things during the first years of his Christian experience. And we see in Paul's first years the same thing that many of us have learned through our own experience. And that is this, and if you haven't tuned in yet, tune in now, because this is where, you know, Paul becomes us. And that is what we learn in our early days of Christianity, is that it's a lot easier and quicker to learn the doctrines of God the theology of God, 
the ideals and ideas of God than it is to learn the ways of God, the nature of God, the character of God. You can learn the doctrines of God quickly, easily, as you just study the Word or are under good teaching, or or even sometimes you don't even need that. You have enough of a foundation in your religious upbringing that as soon as you get saved and are filled with the Holy Ghost, it all just makes sense. The doctrines of God are very clear. But it takes a long time to learn the ways of God. To catch His heartbeat and His pulse and to, 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 to absorb and assimilate His character and let the fruit of His being be born and brought up within you. That takes a longer period of time. And yet it's infinitely more important. And, and Paul was one. He understood beyond any shadow of doubt that Jesus was the Christ. But yet the way that he was putting it forth, it uses the words there in Acts chapter 9 that he contended, that he disputed, and that he proved. He was very harsh. He was very abrasive. He was very forward in his presentation of Jesus, and it produced very little fruit. It's interesting that we read of Jesus, Matthew chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. It speaks of him as one whose voice would not be heard in the streets. That a bruised reed, he wouldn't break. A smoking flax, he wouldn't quench. But that, that it speaks of his nature, that he was very gentle. That he was very patient. Very soft, almost, in the way that he dealt with people. He wasn't abrupt and forward, except with the Pharisees. As they were holding people back from God. Then you see the, you know, the lion, of course, you know. But Paul brought a death sentence upon himself first in Damascus. And then in Jerusalem, and he sent to Tarsus, where it says that the churches then had rest in Judea. And it's during the time that Saul or Paul is in Tarsus that God puts the finishing touches on his character. Shaping him, who he's going to be, preparing him for the ministry that God had foreordained for him. Now while while Paul was in the city of Tarsus, Barnabas, who was there in Jerusalem, one of the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem, Barnabas was sent to a city called Antioch. North of Samaria, on the Mediterranean coast, on the very outside edge of the Israeli territory. Just on the border of Gentile land. And a church had been planted there, and it was beginning to grow. So the apostles sent Barnabas up to Antioch to help out, to oversee the work that was going on there. And while there, the church just multiplied. The number of the disciples grew. And there was a need in Antioch for someone who could help, someone who could teach, that could just come alongside of the disciples that were there. And the Spirit, in some way, spoke to Barnabas and said, Hey, there's a man that could do this job real well in the city of Tarsus. And it tells us that Barnabas left and he went to Tarsus to look for Paul. And that he brought Paul from Tarsus back to Antioch, and thus Paul's ministry began. It tells us that for a period of a year, Barnabas and Paul and some others were there teaching the church, feeding the church, helping the church, exhorting the church. And that after a year, as they ministered unto the Lord, as they fasted and prayed, it says that the Spirit spoke and said, separate unto me Saul, or Paul, and Barnabas for the ministry for which I've called them. 
And Paul then from there goes forth and he begins with Barnabas to plant the various churches in the Galatian region to whom he is writing here in our epistle. It's where it happened. And it tells us, um, you know, that, that, that they preached the gospel there. And it was then that the controversy concerning Paul's ministry really began. As he left the Israeli territories and began planting churches in Gentile cities that were made up of Gentile people, that's where the conflict started. The Jews then began to follow Paul and to discredit his message and to sow seeds of doubt within the churches that were there. And they claimed as they went, these Jews, that they had been sent from Jerusalem. That Peter himself sent us to tell you that this man Paul is a heretic and that you shouldn't listen to anything he says. And so because of this, Paul makes the decision as he returns to Antioch with Barnabas that, listen, we need to go to Jerusalem and we need to hash this out. We're going to sit down with the apostles and we're going to discuss Gentile salvation and we're going to discuss a Christian's relationship to the law of God and the customs of the Jews. And so they go. They, they go there to bring up these things and it's here in Paul's life and in Paul's ministry that we pick up as we start in Galatians chapter 2. He tells us there in verse 1 that 14 years after his first trip to Jerusalem, after all that other stuff had happened, that he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with him also. And he says, I went up by revelation and I communicated unto them, that is the church leaders there in Jerusalem, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. So because of the sensitivity of the nature of Paul's message and because of the controversy that it was stirring, because of what it meant and the implications of it, he goes to Jerusalem and they have a meeting. Now, that meeting is recorded in Acts chapter 15. And if you have your Bible and want to just turn back Oh, a handful of pages, Acts chapter 15. And we'll just read what took place in that meeting so that we can understand the discussion that took place that Paul is describing for us. It tells us there that certain men, Acts 15 verse 1, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, these men are supposedly brethren. They're carrying with them the name of Christ and the authority of being sent by Jerusalem. And they are claiming that you must be circumcised after the manner of Moses if you want to be saved. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Now, verse 2 tells us, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that means division, you know, disagreement, that means no small means that it was heated, it was contentious. No small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through 
Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to the time that he went to the house of Cornelius, that Gentile centurion who became a Christian and was filled with the Holy Ghost. It was Peter who led the first Gentile to Christ. And Peter says, you know that it was by my mouth that the Gentiles should hear and believe. And then in verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And, and, and you know, you can go on and read the rest of Acts chapter 15. But basically, Paul and Barnabas, they come to Jerusalem. They have this meeting where this issue is brought right to the forefront in the hearing of Paul and Barnabas and in the hearing of Peter, James, and John and the elders and leaders there in Jerusalem. And the conclusion that they come to is that, yes, the Gentiles are able to receive salvation by grace through faith and that it is not required for them to become circumcised or to keep the laws or customs or convert to Judaism prior to their salvation, but that by faith in Jesus Christ, they are able to not only be saved, but to receive the power of the Spirit, and that there is, listen, no separation between Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. That was the conclusion that they came to in Acts chapter 15. That the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ are one. They are one body and that there's no separation. The Jews are not superior because of their Israeli blood. And the Gentiles are not inferior because that they, they're not of the stock of Abraham or the seed of Abraham. But in Christ, by faith in His name, it's a common salvation. That was the result of the meeting that they had as Paul and Barnabas went up. Now, back in Galatians, Paul adds now to what was spoken in Acts chapter 15, his perspective. So, chapter you know, 2 of Galatians, back there 
in verse 3, Paul now gives his perspective of what took place. And that's interesting. You know, if you could kind of see that meeting, you would hear all the words that were going back and forth, and you would see Paul just kind of sitting there with Barnabas, taking it all in. This guy says this, then James comes back with that, and then, you know, Judas the Pharisee says this, and then, you know, James comes back, and this whole thing, and, and Saul just taking it all in. And here he kind of breaks his mind and he lets us know what he was thinking as all of this took place. He says, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Gentile, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that, or the reason for that, is because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privily or sneakily, to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection. That is, we we did what they wanted us to do. We circumcised him right away. No, no, no. Paul says, no. (laughs) Not for an hour. Not for one minute did we give subjection or even a place to what they were saying. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says that these men came in, and and he he tells us two things about them. First of all, he says that they were false brethren. Ooh, that's tough, isn't it? Paul, don't you think you're being a little bit judgmental? I mean, you're basically claiming that these Pharisees, which believed, it speaks of in Acts 15, that you're saying that they were false brethren, that they were not even legitimate in their faith in Christ? He says they were false brethren, and he said, second of all, that the reason why they came in was to spy out our liberty. That is, that they came in because they were jealous, basically. They were bitter and jealous because of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ to not be entangled in the laws and customs of Moses. They were bitterly jealous. Now, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told the story or the parable of the prodigal son. And I think we're all aware of that. You know, there's a father, he has two sons, and one of the sons just says, you know what, I don't like it here. Give me my portion of the inheritance and just let me go. I want to start my own life. And so the father obliges and he gives the inheritance to his son, and his son goes out and he wastes it. Lewd living, you know, just... Giving, giving his life to the hogs, really, and, and just finds himself rock bottom where he has to get a job just feeding pigs. And he's so hungry that he just wants to eat the stuff the pigs are eating. He's so destitute and, and so really messed up in, in the position that he's in. And he thinks within himself, you know what, I had it better when I was a servant at my father's house. I'm going home. And so he leaves the ranch and he goes back towards his father's house and his father sees him and a long way off, his father quickly just girds up his coat and begins to run out to meet his son who's coming home. And he rejoices that this son of his that had left has now come home. The son that was lost is now found. The one who was dead is now alive and it rejoices the heart of the father. And so he says, Kill the fatted calf and make a party, a celebration for this son of mine. He's home. And then we discover as we read the tail end of that story that it isn't the story of the prodigal son at all. It's actually the story of the prodigal sons, plural. Because what we discover is that the other son, though he had never left physically, he was bitter with jealousy in his heart 
while he was present there at the house. He becomes bitter when he sees the rejoicing of the father who accepted this wayward son. And he says, hey, you're killing the fatted calf? What are you talking about? Look at what he's done. He's wasted your inheritance. Look what he's done with his life. He smells like pigs and he's a mess. And you're accepting him so freely and even blessing him, giving him the fatted calf? What's wrong with this? And the father said, listen, you've been here with me the whole time. Everything that I have is yours. But look, he was dead and now he's alive. You should be rejoicing. And the older son, we find, was in a worse position than the younger son. And Paul's description of these Pharisees that came to spy out their liberty is like that of the older brother. The Gentiles are being saved. The very source of pagan influence in the world is coming to Christ and being transformed. The Holy Spirit of God is moving within them and from the inside out they're being made holy. The power of the blood of Jesus Christ is being manifested in these people. And all that these Jews who are supposed to be sons of the Father, they're supposed to be the representative of God in the earth, they just look on and say, don't they realize everything that we've had to go through? They should have to be circumcised. They should have to keep Sabbath. They should have to, you know, water the horses and, you know, plow the fields and sow the... They should have to go through all of this. This isn't right. And Paul says that their whole agenda for joining our church was not to rejoice in what God was doing or to partake of it. But their whole reason for doing it was simply to see the liberty that we have so that at the right time they could bring us into bondage. So that at the right time they could come alongside and say, do you really agree with the things that Pastor Paul is teaching? Do you really think it's right doctrine that you're hearing there in that church? Because I've been listening to the things that have been coming out of that pulpit. And I've got a few bones to pick. And if you want, I can sit down with you and I can show you my contentions. And I can even show you how it lines up scripturally. And you can decide for yourself if you think what they're teaching is right. They came in sneakily, privately. Not to partake, not to rejoice. But because they wanted to bring the people there into bondage. And they wanted to make them bitter, basically, like they were. Interesting, isn't it? Paul goes on to say, concerning this meeting and concerning these Judaizers who were so polished in their presentation and so able to orate the principles that they stood upon, he speaks of them and he says in verse 6, but of those who seem to be somewhat or something, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. For God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be something in conference added nothing to me. It's interesting that Paul was able to have the perspective and the ability to separate himself from the presentation that these people so polished in their you know, giving gave to them. But Paul was able to say, you know, they're, they're such fine orators and they make such good points. And they sound so good, but you know, if I really step back and really evaluate in my own life the effect that the things that they're saying have upon me, really, it doesn't affect me at all. They're not adding anything to me. They're not edifying me. They're not building me up. I don't feel closer to God. I'm not growing in my understanding of the truth and in my love for Him. 
I'm becoming basically a Pharisee like them. I'm listening to what they say, but it's just making me critical. It's just making me bitter. It's making me, you know, what's wrong with this? I had an experience like that in my own life. I remember when I first got saved, I was so hungry and so in love with the Word of God that if I could find any semblance of Christian radio station on any part of any dial, AM or FM, I was excited. I was going to soak it up. And it didn't matter who it was, what denomination they came from, who they represented. If there was someone on there talking about the Bible, I wanted to hear it. And it's amazing that no matter what it was, I would get something out of it. But then after a little while, you know, you're a Christian for a little while, and you get into a few conversations, and maybe some names or something come up in a conversation. Someone says, oh, you were listening to who? You know that they believe this, don't you? You know that they're a hyper-Calvinist, don't you? And it's like, no, hyper-Calvinist, die, you know? And you're like, oh, and I don't know what a hyper-Calvinist is. I'm a new Christian, so I'm going, oh, they are? Hyper-Calvinists, yeah, they're pretty bad, you know. And... But a strange thing begins to happen when all of a sudden this one's a hyper-Calvinist and this one's an Arminius and this one's, you know, uh, uh, you know, hyper-charismatic and this one is, you know, a staunch, frozen, chosen one. You know, and you hear all these different things. All of a sudden, I can't even listen to the radio because everybody's a heretic. Whereas once in the simplicity of Jesus Christ, I could listen to just about anyone and get something out of it. I found myself coming to a place in my own life where now I can't listen to anyone because everybody's evil and trying to deceive me. See, they that seem to be somewhat in conference, oh, you should, you should understand what a hyper-Calvinist is. You should understand the dangers of charismania in the church. Listen, I understand the dangers of all of those things, but please, you're not adding anything to me with your pharisaical comments about what's right and wrong within the church. I have the Holy Spirit of God. And I know when I hear something that, you know what, that's not quite right, or it's out of balance, or it's in check. But please, let me receive from God the thing that he wants to give to me. Paul says, they that seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrary-wise, when they saw, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. That is, Paul saying, when they saw that God was calling me, that God was giving me authority with the Gentile people, that God was working mightily through my life to reach these people, in the same way that God gave Peter grace with the Jews. When they saw that, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when Peter, or James, Cephas, who was Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So Paul tells us that the outcome of this meeting, not just the doctrinal position that the church took, but the personal place they gave Paul in the ministry of Jesus Christ is that they ratified it. They laid hands on him and said, God bless you, Paul. God is using you to reach the Gentiles. 
He's given you a message. He's shown to you the truth of the gospel, of the grace of Jesus Christ. Be blessed. Be fruitful. Go. As the apostleship of the circumcision was committed unto Peter, they gave to me and Barnabas the duty, the job, the task, the ministry of reaching out to the Gentiles. And thus Paul, as he describes to the Galatian church the source of where his message came from, he also adds to it that it was indeed ratified by the church in Jerusalem. That he was not some renegade preacher that was just going about floundering his own ideas and giving them some fluffy, feel-good message. But that, that he had gone to Jerusalem, that they had discussed these things, and that he had actually been sent by them. And so thus Paul is saying, not only have I been called and sent by God, but it was also ratified through the church in Jerusalem. The validity of this message. Well, as we move on from that, we see how and why this message of Paul's brings division. How can this be so divisive? This concept of Gentile salvation and the Christian's relationship with the law. Well, look what happens when Peter pays a visit to Antioch. Verse 11. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. That means I rebuked him to his face. Because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, that is, before certain people came from Jerusalem, Peter did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, that is, the people from Jerusalem, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews that were in Antioch there, dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation or their separation. Do you, do you see what's happening here? A separation is beginning to take place between the Jewish Christians in Antioch and the Gentile Christians in Antioch. And Peter is at the helm of it. That the apostle that started it all off there in Acts chapter 2 is the front runner of a separation, a division that's taking place in the church in Antioch because he is withdrawing when the Jews came from Jerusalem. But Paul says, when I saw, verse 14, that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all in front of everybody, if you, being a Jew, live after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, then why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? It's a very practical point that Paul makes as he brings out the inconsistency in Peter's life. He says, listen, you're a Jew, right? And he says, if you as a Jew are, are living like the Gentiles, you were eating with them, you were fellowshipping with them, you were partaking with them. If you as a Jew live as the Gentiles, and not like a Jew who separates himself from Gentiles, then why do you, through your behavior of separating from them when the Jews come from Jerusalem, compel them to be like you? You're a Jew. You're living like a Gentile. But yet you're saying to the Gentiles, you should be a Jew. But you're living like a Gentile. So what kind of a message is that, Peter? Now listen, Paul is not saying to Peter, choose one. You almost get the sense that Paul's saying, well, what are you? Are you a Jew or a Gentile, Peter? You were eating with the Jews. Are you a Gentile? Now you're eating with the Jews. Are you a Jew? That's not what he's saying. It isn't what he's saying at all. 
But rather, what he's doing is that by giving in, by Peter giving in to the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles, he was denying the fact that there is no more separation between the two. Before the men came from James, Peter was, he was there. He was eating pork. He was enjoying it. He was having a bacon, egg, and cheese omelet on kosher. And he was loving it, you know. And he was saying, wow, this is great. But then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And some tall hats and flowing robes show up. Elder badges from the church in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Peter <clears throat> oh, wipes his mouth and you know, takes a quick drink. And he goes and he sits at another table where there's only Jews, Barnabas and perhaps Paul and some others, just Jews there. You know. And Paul catches on. He sees what's happening. He sees the behavioral change in Peter. And he sees that it's even affecting others. It's affecting Barnabas. It's affecting other of the Jews. That they're saying, oh, we need to stay away from those Gentiles. They're not quite holy, you know. And so Paul says, look, you are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. Because in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but you are all one in Jesus Christ. Paul would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. And he would say, wherefore, to that church, he said, wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time, when you were just a Gentile, unsaved, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one. Listen, he's made both one. The Jew and the Gentile are one. And he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That which separated Jew from Gentile in times past, that wall has now been broken. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for, the reason for doing that, was to make in himself of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you, the Gentiles, which were afar off, and to them which were nigh, that is the Jews. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, Peter, by separating himself from the Gentile believers when the Pharisees came from Jerusalem, he was empowering the argument that was held by the Judaizers that the Gentiles were not quite worthy. They're not as saved as we are because we're the Jews. They haven't quite yet arrived to it. And Peter, through his behavior, was driving the wedge into that division to the point where Paul said, look, You're not right in this. 
You are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. And Peter's fault, or why he was to be blamed, was because his actions were inconsistent with his profession. He professed equality that the Jew and the Gentile, both saved by faith, it came out of his mouth in Acts chapter 15. But yet now, by his behavior, he was saying something altogether different. Now, the context of Paul's gripe that he had with Peter was over the doctrinal issue of grace versus law and the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. But the reason why Paul rebuked Peter to his face, the reason why he did it, was because of the inconsistency in his profession. What he was doing in his behavior was making his message impotent. Do you know anybody like that? What they're doing in their behavior makes their profession impotent. Peter, through his behavior, was nullifying his message. Where God was seeking to break down a barrier, Peter was actually reinforcing the separation or the wall that God was bringing down. Now, I know that there's going to be someone that's going to say, listen, Paul is the apostle of grace, right? Yeah, he is. So what's the big deal? I mean, wouldn't grace just kind of let it go? Wouldn't grace say, it's not that big of a deal? You know, so what? You know, Peter separates himself. He's a little uncomfortable. He's not quite there yet at that level where he can, you know, boldly eat with the Gentiles. What's the big deal? Where Peter eats or what people say or what kind of clothes people wear. It's all grace, right? Paul, why are you calling Peter out like this? Well, in verses 15 through 21, Paul tells us why it matters. Why does it matter? Why does Paul call these Pharisees false brethren? Why does Paul call their message a false gospel? Why did Paul have to rebuke Peter to his face? And why is Paul even writing Galatians at all? What's the big deal? Why does it matter? He tells us in verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by nature... And not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. But by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we. Now underline that. Mark that where Paul says that. He says even we. Because he's talking about Jews. He himself is a Jew. Peter is a Jew. He says even we who are Jews by nature have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul says, listen, we are Jews by nature. We're not part of the sinful Gentiles that that everybody thinks, the scary, cootie-bearing Gentiles. You know, we're not of them. But he says, listen, we are saved by grace through faith. Just like they are. And he says that the law can't justify anyone. That we are all justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For He, says, he tells us that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And I hope that is highlighted, underlined, starred next to your Bible. Listen, you cannot be justified before God by how well you perform in keeping God's commands and God's demands. 
You say, well, okay, well then why was the law given? If, if, if a man cannot be justified before God by doing what God wants, if it's never going to be good enough what he performs, what he gives, what he puts forth, then why did God give the law at all? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says the exact same thing that he said to the Galatians, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But then he goes on to tell us then the purpose of the law. He says, for by the law, is the knowledge of sin. That the reason for the law being given was not because it could save anybody. was not because it could motivate me into being good enough that I might get into heaven, but rather the law was given to highlight my iniquity. Because once the law comes on the scene and the law says, do not be jealous. Oh, I said, oh, goodness. Okay, I can't be jealous anymore. Okay, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. Wow, that's a good haircut. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. That's a real nice car. But I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. You know, and that person just has a great life. Man, I want the life they've got, you know, but I'm not jealous. I'm not. And all of a sudden, after a while of trying to keep the law, what you realize, if you're smart, is that you can't keep the law. And all of a sudden, you're brought into a place where you realize, I'm in trouble. See, if you're self-justifying and self-righteous or religious, you'll never say that. You'll just hide the iniquity internally and you'll say to yourself, well, since no one else can see the way I am, God must not be able to see the way I am. So I will continue to outwardly not be jealous and what I think on the inside doesn't really matter. Or I will continually outwardly not murder anybody, but inside if I could just have five minutes alone with them, you know. And so God only looks at the outside, but no, 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 no. Because my very conscience tells me. My conscience won't let me escape the reality that God sees beyond what's on the outside. That he can see my heart. Every vile affection. Every sinful motive. And so the law that should have saved me, it can't save me. But what it does do, if I'm honest with myself, is it reveals I have a problem. I'm a sinner. And the law says that the wages of sin or the penalty of sin is what? Death. It's called the law of sin and death according to Romans chapter 6 verse 23. It's the law of sin and death that the wages of sin is death. And so what it does is it drives me then to a savior. One who fulfilled the law on my behalf. One who kept the law perfectly, never stumbling in one point. And yet, what did Jesus pay? The penalty of death. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. And so therefore, he purchased a get out of hell free card and he offers it freely to whosoever will receive it. So therefore, he can justly, fairly, save a sinner because he paid the sinner's debt. Do you understand? Paul says we have been saved not by our adherence to the law of God, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The purpose of the law is that we know we're sinners. But in verse 17 he goes on and he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, 
if we've accepted Jesus as our Savior, if we have forsaken our vain attempts to try to work our way into God's favor, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Now, be careful here, Christian. Because I'm sure that you read this right after you sinned. You know how that happens? You stumble, you fail, you fall, and you say, Oh, I just need to get in the Word and wash myself off. And so you flip open and it goes right to Hebrews chapter 6. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And we go, No, you know. Or Hebrews chapter 10, that if we sin willfully, we crucify him again and we trample the blood of Jesus under our feet and we count and we go, no, you know, are you open here? That if we sin, or we're found sinners after, you know, and we go, no, but listen, this Paul is not saying if you sin after you get saved, you're out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you are found a sinner after you've sought to be justified by Christ, you have a problem. And here's what your problem is. You cannot be found a sinner unless you are under the covenant of the law. Follow me. What is the purpose of the law? It reveals what? Sin. That's right. So if you are found to be a sinner, the only way you can be found to be a sinner is if you're under the covenant of the law. And if you are under the covenant of the law, you have a problem because you are seeking to be justified by Christ and by your adherence to the law. You, Christian, and I, we are not under the covenant of the law. There are two laws in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says this. It says that he has delivered us from the law of sin and death, putting us into the law of the spirit of life. How does it say it exactly? Because I totally butchered that, didn't I? Let me turn to it. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. It says, for the law of the spirit of life, much better, in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Do you follow? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's a completely separate covenant. You're not under the law anymore. You're not trying to be justified by the law. The law has accomplished its work in your life. It has driven you to Jesus Christ. And thus, not being under the law, you are free in Christ. But if, being free in Christ, you are seeking to justify yourself under the covenant of the law, then you've got a problem. Because now you're being found a sinner. And the only way that you can be found a sinner is if you're under the covenant of the law. Once you've been removed from that covenant, you are justified by the blood of Christ. Not because of what you've done. Your goodness, your faithfulness, your strength but because of what he's done, his work, his cross, his blood, his grace. Paul goes on, Galatians 2.18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. That is, that if I go back to, you know, trying to use customs, trying to make rules and rituals and wear special clothes and observe holy days, if I do anything but simply trust in Jesus Christ by faith as the means of my salvation, then I've got a problem. If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, 
am dead to the law that I might live unto God. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul uses the relationship of marriage to illustrate a person's relationship with the law. And in Romans chapter 7, he says, he makes the case, and he says to them basically that that a man is bound by law to his wife as long as he's alive. And he cannot be separated from that marriage bond until he's dead, until death do his part. And Paul relates that to a person's relationship with the law. That you are born into a relationship with the law, and there is only one way out of that relationship. I remember I had so much fun when we went through Romans in Romans chapter 7 because, you know, I I remember saying to you that it's like being married to Mr. Perfect. Perfect hair, perfect breath, perfect dresser, perfect job, perfect house, perfect lawn, perfect car, everything perfect. Waking up in the morning, he's perfect. He's perfect. First thing in the morning, perfect. Everything perfect. And you boast and you say, I married Mr. Perfect. And everything goes really well until he comes home from work the first day and he sees that your hair's a little messed up and that there's a mess on the countertop. And when he sees that, that's all he can see. He's perfect. He sees the messed up hair. He sees the mess on the countertop. He sees that the bed has not been made, that the kids' rooms are in disarray. And you say, oh, Okay, all right, I can handle this. And so you fix your hair and you fix this. And then he comes home the second day and he sees that your car is a little bit dirty. That the orange juice that was spilled on the rug isn't cleaned up quite right. And because he's perfect, all he can see is imperfection. Because he's perfect. And you see, that's what the law does. The law will drive you to suicide. And that's exactly where Paul's going with it in Romans chapter 7. See, you can't kill the law... Because Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word will ever pass away. There's nothing wrong with the law. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So the law is not going to die. The law is not going to go away. The law isn't flawed. So if I want to be separated from the law, there's really only one option. Paul tells us what it is right here. Verse 19, he says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me that's why the bible calls it being born again people think that that's the name of a denomination or a sect or a set of ideals it's not jesus said you must be born again why because you've got to die you must die to your attempt to keep the law of god you must die at your attempt of self-righteous justification before a holy god you must die at your best efforts to try to please god in your flesh and let christ be raised to life within you crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God 
For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Circle it, underline it, highlight it, memorize it, put it on your fridge, put it on the dashboard of your car. Say it ten times before you go to bed. Don't ever forget this verse. Listen. If righteousness is come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. That means if you can save yourself by doing good works, by faithful church attendance, by wearing the proper clothes, by using the proper speech, saying the proper prayers, if you can do anything to save yourself, then Jesus Christ did not have to die on the cross. He died for nothing. Because you could do it. Point is, you can't do it. And Paul says, I don't frustrate the grace of God. Isn't it interesting to think that you can frustrate God? See, I think that I'm frustrating God by my continued failure. I frustrate God because he expects so much of me and I produce so little. God is frustrated. No, no, no. That doesn't frustrate God. I frustrate God because I try you know, to, to do the things that he wants and I find that I'm just doing what I want. So he's frustrated. That doesn't frustrate him. You know what frustrates God? Is when we refuse to submit to the grace of God as our means of salvation and our means of fellowship with him. When we say, I'll try harder, God, next time. I know I won't fail again. That frustrates God. No, no, don't you understand my grace? Don't you understand that you're accepted in the beloved? That you're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? That you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God? That I am your righteousness? That I'm at the right hand of the Father? I'm here. Your name is written in heaven. You're engraved in the palms of my hand. That I love you? Oh, I know you'll love me more if I could just get over this hurdle. And God says, that frustrates me. Because you're not relying upon my blood and the power of my spirit, but you're relying upon yourself. And your performance. And you're gauging your relationship with me based on how well you're performing. How consistent you are. Good luck. Amazingly, by the power of God's Spirit within us, He's able to produce great things. Things that we could never do in and of ourselves. But when we seek to rely upon ourselves, it frustrates the grace of God. As we close our study tonight, what is it? What's the objective of this Bible study? What is God? I mean, I know we go through a lot of verses and we're, you know, understanding and seeing doctrine, but what is it that God would say to us tonight to take away from this and just apply to our lives to meditate on and chew on? Three things as we close very quickly just to consider to chew on. Number one, when it comes to our Christian character and lifestyle, please understand that the ways of God are much more important than the what's and the why's. Paul the Apostle had to learn the character and the nature of God before he would be effective in communicating the doctrines and the truth of God. The doctrines, the ideas, the theology, the concepts that we gain from Scripture, all of those things are good and valuable, but they're easy to learn. But the character and the nature of God, the fruit of the Spirit being birthed and worked in our lives, that is not so easy, and it doesn't come so quickly. It takes time in His presence. It takes a little bit of perseverance to apply the things that we understand and, and, and learn in our lives, fellowshipping with Him, allowing Him to, 
to renew our mind and to make us new and to grow up within us. And we understand, we learn. Actually, Psalm 103, verse 7, it says it so well. It says that he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. Any of the people in that day could tell you what God does. He divides the sea. He brings water out of the rock. And they could give you the doctrines of God so clearly. But God draws a distinction between those that know what he does and those that know who he is. Moses knows my ways. He's been with me. He's been on top of the mountain. He's heard my voice. He's fellowshiped with me. I know him. He knows me. And it's so much more valuable than just knowing the what's of God and being able to simply quote scripture and divide theology. It's more important to walk with him, to fellowship with him, to put the principles of God into action in our lives and learn his ways. Without that, our theology is dead. So the, what, the ways of God are so much more important. I hope that as a church we're cultivating that. That we're not well-versed, conference speakers, able to divide doctrines, but that we're people who know God personally. That it comes out of our speech. It comes out of our interactions with our neighbors, our employers, our spouses, and our children. That we know Him. It's so much more valuable. Number two, stand upon what you believe. We learn this from Paul's rebuke to Peter. The thing that gives credibility to the message that you carry is how firmly you stand upon it with your life. Paul's question to Peter was, if you being a Jew live like a Gentile, why do you try to get the Gentiles to be like the Jews? Very good question. But I believe that if Paul could look at our churches today, he would ask the same question and he would rephrase it just a little bit. He would say, if you, being a Christian, live like the world and not like a Christian, then why do you compel the world to be Christians? There's an inconsistency between the profession that you're making with your mouth and the behavior that you're demonstrating with your life. You're saying that you believe something, but you're not standing upon that belief. If you believe that a sinful life that a worldly lifestyle separates a man from God and brings him into the condemnation of hell and into the need of a Savior of Jesus Christ. And you profess with your mouth that Savior and that sin, but then you continue living openly and willingly in that lifestyle. Then you're undermining and making your message impotent because you're not standing upon what you believe. And the Bible teaches us that we should stand where we believe. Jesus said that he that hears and does my words is like a man who builds his life upon a rock. The storms come, the waves roar, and the house will stand because it's founded upon a rock. And he condemned them because he said, you call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I say. You're saying I'm your Lord, but you're not standing upon the rock of your profession. We all know people, they claim to follow Christ, and yet the message that they preach with their lifestyle directly contradicts the message that they preach. You know, one of the things that, you know, the social networks, you know, you have Facebook and Twitter and all that, and, you know, we all love it. You know, we're all there and and we're, we're coming up to speed, and they're great things, nothing wrong with them, but I find that so many times it can be an instrument in the hand of Satan. 
Because, you, you know, you have people, and we all know them, that they get on there, and, and they'll tell you how wasted they were on Saturday, but then how blessed they were in church on Sunday. And you say, oh, goodness, you know, yeah, grace. You're, I'm not questioning your salvation. But please, do you understand what you're doing to those people that are watching your life? You're preaching two different messages, one with your mouth and another with your feet, and it's undermining the power of it. Stand upon what you believe. And then finally, be careful not to frustrate the grace of God. Anything that you try to accomplish yourself that Jesus Christ already accomplished on the cross frustrates the grace of God. Jesus died to take away our sin. If you try to take away your own, it frustrates the grace of God. He died to grant forgiveness. If you try to earn forgiveness or not just simply accept it or forgive yourself, you frustrate the grace of God. Jesus died to open the way into God's presence. If you try to work your way into God's presence, hype up the prayer time, stir yourself up, it frustrates the grace of God. You're freely invited. Jesus died to give transforming power by his spirit. But if you try to apply reforming effort upon yourself, it frustrates the grace of God. And Jesus died to allow us to be promise takers, receivers of his promise. But when we become promise makers, God, I promise I won't do this, or God, I promise I will do this, or I'll be better, it frustrates the grace of God. The grace of God is given freely. It's to be received and enjoyed. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for for this word that you've given. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, I know that there are some here that came in tonight feeling condemned feeling dismayed, discouraged, feeling as though they're not approved, feeling in their heart as though they want to please you but just can't. I pray that they would leave here tonight rejoicing, knowing that we're justified by faith in Christ, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Please help us, Lord. Please give us wisdom. Please give us strength by your spirit, to be who you called us to be. May the joy of our salvation flood our thirsty souls tonight. May you be glorified in the work that you do in our lives. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name.